Well, guys, we're up to the end book, book three of 1984 by George Orwell. There's about eight chapters in it. We're going to try to finish it up this week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we'll be starting a new book next Monday. There'll be a couple of teaser trailers, and then you'll get the full trailer on Friday. So, without further ado, let's start the reading. He did not know where he was. Presumably, he was in the Ministry of Love, but there was no way of making certain. He was in a high-ceilinged, windowless cell with walls glittering white porcelain. Concealed lamps flooded it with cold light, and there was a slow, steady humming sound in which he supposed was something to do with the air supply. A bench, or a shelf, just wide enough to sit on, ran across the room. Broken only by the door, and at the opposite end of the door, a laboratory pan with no wooden seat. There were four telescreens, one on each wall. There was a dull aching in his belly. It had been there ever since they bundled him into the closed van and driven him away. But he was also hungry, with a gnawing, unwholesome kind of hunger. It might have been 24 hours since he'd eaten, might have been 36. He still did not know, probably never would know, whether it had been morning or evening when they arrested him. Since he was arrested, he had not been fed. He sat as still as he could on the narrow bench with his hands crossed over his knee. He had already learned to sit still. If you made an expected movement, they yelled at you from the telescreen. But the craving for food was growing upon him. What he longed for above all was a piece of bread. He had the idea that there were a few breadcrumbs in the pocket of his overalls. It was even possible he thought this because from time to time something seemed to tickle his leg and that there might be a sizable bit of crust there. In the end, the temptation to find out overcame his fear, and he slipped his hand into the pocket. Smith! yelled a voice from the telescreen. 6079 Smith W. Hands out of your pockets in the cell. He sat still again, his hands crossed on his knee, and before being brought here, he had, he had been taken to another place which must have been an ordinary prison or temporary lockup used by the patrols. He did not know how long he had been there. Some hours, at any rate. There were no clocks, no daylight. It was hard to gauge what the time. It was a noisy, evil-smelling place. They had put him into a cell similar to the one he is in now, but filthy dirty. And at times and at all times crowded by ten or fifteen people. The majority of them were common criminals, but there were a few political prisoners among them. 
he sat silent against the wall, jostled by dirty bodies, too preoccupied by fear and pain in his belly to take much interest in his surroundings, but still noticing the astonishing difference in demeanor between the party prisoners and the others. Party prisoners were always silent, terrified, but the ordinary criminal, ordinary criminals seemed to care nothing about for anybody. They yelled insults at the guards, fought back fiercely when their belongings were impounded, wrote obscene words on the floor, ate smuggled food which they produced from mysterious hiding places in their clothes, and even shouted down the telescreen when it tried to restore order. On the other hand, some of, some of them seemed to be on good terms with the guards, called them by nicknames, and tried to wheedle cigarettes through the spy hole in the door. The guards, too, treated the common criminals with a certain forbearance, even when they had to handle them roughly. There was much talk about the forced labor camps in which most of the prisoners expected to be sent. It was all right in the camps, he gathered, so long as you had good contacts and knew the ropes. There was bribery, favoritism, and racketeering of all kinds. There was homosexuality and prostitution. There was even illicit alcohol distilled from potatoes. The positions of trust were only given to the common criminals, especially the gangsters and the murderers, who formed a sort of aristocracy. All the dirty jobs were done by the politicals. They were a constant come-and-go of prisoners of every description, drug peddlers, thieves, bandits, black marketeers, drunks, prostitutes. Some of the drunks were so violent that the other prisoners had to combine to suppress them. An enormous wreck of a woman, aged about sixty, with great tumbling breasts and thick coils of white hair that had come down in her struggles, was carried in, kicking and shouting, by four guards who had a hold of her one at each corner. They wrenched off the boots in which she had been trying to kick with and dumped her down across Winston's lap, almost breaking his thigh bones. The woman hoisted herself upright, followed them out with a yell of fucking bastards. Then, noticing she was sitting on something uneven, she slid off Winston's legs and onto the bench. Beg pardon, dearie, she said. I wouldn't have sat on you, but those buggers put me there. I don't know why they treat a lady. Do you? She paused and patted her breast and belched. Pardon, she said. I ain't myself quite. She leaned forward and vomited copiously on the floor. That's, that's better, she said, leaning back with closed eyes. Never keep it down. That's what I say. Get it up while it's fresh in your stomach, like. She revived, turned to have another look at Winston, and seemed immediately to take a fancy on him. She put a vast arm around his shoulder and drew him towards her, breathing beer and vomit in his face. What's your name, dearie, she said. Smith, said Winston. Smith, said the woman. That's funny. 
My name's Smith, too. Wow, she added some sentimentality. I might ought to be your mother. She might, thought Winston, be his mother. She was at the right age and physique. It was probable that people changed somewhere after twenty years in a for forced labor camp. No one else had spoken to him. To a surprising extent, the ordinary criminal criminals ignored the party prisoners. The politics, they called them, with a sort of uninterested contempt. The party prisoners seemed terrified of speaking to anybody. Above all, the speaking to one another. Once, only once, when two party members, both women, were pressed close together on the bench, he overheard amid the din of the voices a few hur hurriedly whispered words, and in particular a reference to something called Room 101, which he did not understand. It might be two or three hours ago that they brought him in here. The dull pain in his belly never went away, but sometimes it grew better and sometimes worse. His thoughts expanded or contracted accordingly. When it grew worse, he thought of only food or pain. When it grew better, the panic took hold of him. And there were moments when he foresaw things they would they would happen to him with such actuality his heart galloped and his breathing stopped he felt the smash of truncheons on his elbows and iron-shod boots on his shins he saw himself groveling on the floor screaming for mercy through broken teeth he hardly thought of julia he could not fix his mind on her he loved her and would not betray her, but that was the only, that was only a fact. He knew, known as he knew the rules of arithmetic, he felt no love for her, and he hardly even wondered what happened to her. He thought oftener of O'Brien with flickering hope. O'Brien must have known that he had been arrested. The Brotherhood, he had said never tried to save its members but there was the razor blade they would send the razor blade if they could they would perhaps five seconds before the guards could rush into the cell the blade would bite into him with a sort of burning coldness and even the fingers that held it which cut to the bone everything else came back to his sick body which shrank trembling from the smallest pain. He was not certain that he would use the razor plate even if he had the chance. It was more natural to exist from moment to moment, accepting another ten minutes of life, even with the certainty that there was torture at the end of it. Sometimes he tried to calculate the number of porcelain bricks in the walls of the cell. It should have been easy, but he always lost count some point or another. More often he wondered where he was and what time of day it was. At the moment he felt certain that it was broad daylight outside and it, at the next equally certain it was pitch darkness. 
In this place, he knew instinctively the lights would never turn out. It was a place with no darkness. He saw now why O'Brien seemed to recognize the illusion. In the ministry of love, there were no windows. His cell might be at the heart of the building or against its outer wall. It might be ten floors up or thirty below's, thirty below ground. He moved himself mentally from place to place, trying to determine by the feeling of his body whether he was perched high in the air or buried deep underground. There was a sound of marching boots outside. The steel door opened with a clang. A young officer, a trim black uniformed figure who seemed to glitter all over with polished leather and whose pale, straight-featured face was like a wax mask, stopped smartly through the doorway. He motioned to the guards outside to bring in the prisoner they were leading. The poet Ampleforth shambled into the cell and the door clanged shut again. Ampleforth made one or two uncertain movements from side to side, as though having some idea that there was another door to go out of. And then he began to wander, wander up and down the cell. He had not yet noticed Winston's presence. His troubled eyes were gazing at the wall about a meter above above the level of Winston's head. He was shoeless, large, dirty toes sticking out of the holes in his socks. He was also several days away from a shave. A scruffy beard covered his face to his cheekbones, giving him an air of ruffinism that was oddly that went oddly with his large, weak frame and nervous movements. Winston roused himself a little from the lethargy. He must speak to Ampleforth and risked the yell telescreen. It was even conceivable that Amperforth was the bearer of the razor blade. Amperforth, he said. There was no yell from the telescreen. Amperforth paused, mildly startled. His eyes focused themselves slowly on Winston. Ah, Smith, he said. You too. What are you in for? To tell you the truth, he sat down awkwardly on the bench opposite Winston. There's only one offense, is there not? He said. And have you committed it? Uh, apparently I have. He put his hand to his forehead and pressed his temples for a moment and was trying to remember something. These things happen, he began vaguely. But I have been able to recall one instance, one possible instance. It was an indiscretion, undoubtedly. We were producing a definite edition of the poems of Kipling. I allowed the word God to remain at the end of a line. I couldn't help it, he said, almost ignorant, raising his face to look at Winston. It was impossible to change the line. The rhyme was robbed. Do you know that there are only twelve rhymes to rod in the entire language? For days I racked my brains. There was no other rhyme. The expression on his face changed. The annoyance passed out of it, and for a moment he looked almost pleased. 
a sort of intellectual warmth, the joy of a pendant who has found some useless fact shown through the dirt and scrubby hair. Has it ever occurred to you, he said, that the whole history of English poetry has been determined by the fact that the English language lacks rhymes? No. That particular thought had never occurred to Winston. Nor in circumstances did it strike him as very important or interesting. Do you know what time of day it is, he said. Ampleforth looked startled again. I ain't hardly thought about it. They arrested me, could be two days ago, perhaps three. His eyes flitted around the walls, as though he half expected to find a window somewhere. There ain't no difference between night and day in this place. I don't see how anyone could calculate the time. They talked for some minutes. And without apparent reason, a yell from the telescreen bade them silent. Winston sat quietly, his hands crossed. Ampleforth, too large to sit in the comfort on the narrow bench, fidgeted from side to side, clasping his lank hands, first around one knee, then around the other. The telescreen barked at him to keep still. Time passed, twenty minutes, an hour. It was difficult to judge. Once more, there was the sound of boots outside. Winston's entrails contracted. Soon, very soon, perhaps in five minutes, perhaps now, the tramp of boots would mean that his own turn had come. The door opened. The cold-faced young officer stepped into the cell. With a brief movement of his hand, he indicated Ampleworth. Room 101, he said. Ampleworth marched clumsily out between the guards, his face vaguely perturbed but uncomprehending. What seemed like a long time passed, the pain in Winston's belly had revived. His mind sagged around and around on the same track, like a ball falling again and again onto the same series of slots. He had only six thoughts, the pain in his belly, piece of bread, the blood and the screaming, O'Brien, Julia, the razor blade. There was another spasm in his entrails, heavy boots approaching. As the door opened, a wave of air that created brought in some powerful smell of cold sweat. Parsons walked into the cell. He was wearing khaki shorts and a sports shirt. This time, Winston was startled into self-forgiveness. You here, he said. Parsons gave Winston a glance, in which there was neither interest nor surprise, only misery. He began walking jerkily up and down, evidently unable to keep still. Each time he straightened his pudgy knees, it was apparent that they were trembling. His eyes had a wide-open, staring look, as though he could not prevent himself from gazing at something in the middle distance. "'What are you in for?' said Winston. "'Thought-crime,' thought said Parsons, almost blubbering. The tone of his voice implied at once a complete admission of his guilt, a sort of incredulous horror 
horror that such a word could be applied to himself. He paused opposite Winston and began eagerly appealing to him. Why, you don't think they'll just shoot, shoot me, do you? Old chap, they don't shoot you if they haven't actually done anything. Only thoughts, which you can't, you can't, you can't help. I know they give you a fair hearing. Oh, I trust them for that. They'll know my record, won't they? They'll know what kind of chap I was. Not a, not a, not a bad chap in my way. Not brainy, of course, but keen. I tried to do my best for the party, didn't I? I get off with five years, don't you think? Or even ten? A chap like me could make himself pretty useful in a, in a labor camp. They wouldn't shoot me for going off the rails just once. Well, are you guilty? said Winston. Of course I'm guilty, cried Parsons, with a glance at the telescreen. You don't think the party would arrest an innocent man, do you? His frog-like face grew calmer, and even took on a slightly sanctimonious expression. Thought crime is a dreadful thing, old man. He said sententiously, "It's insidious. It can get a hold of you without you even knowing. Do you know how, how, how it got a hold of me? In my sleep. That's a fact. There I was working away, trying to do my bit. Never knew I had any bad stuff in my mind at all, and I started talking in my sleep. Do you, do you know what they heard me saying?" He sank his voice like someone who is obliged for medical reasons to utter an obscenity. Down with Big Brother. Yes, I said that. I said it over and over, it seems. Between you and me, old man, I'm glad they got me before it went any further. Do you know what I'm going to say to them when I get up before the tribunal? Thank you. I was going to say thank you for saving me before it was too late. Who denounced you? It, it was my little daughter, said Parsons, with a doleful pride. She listened at the keyhole, heard what I was saying, and nipped off to the patrols the very next day. Smart little nipper, 7A. I don't bear her any grudge for it. In fact, I'm proud of her. It shows I brought her up in the right spirit, anyhow. He made a few jerky movements up and down, several times casting a longing glance over at the laboratory pan, and then suddenly ripped down his shorts. Excuse me, old man, he said. I can't help it. It's the waiting. He plumped his large posterior onto the laboratory pan. Winston covered his face with his hands. Smith! yelled the voice from the telescreen. 6079 Smith! W, uncover your face. No faces covered in the cells. Winston uncovered his face. Parson used the lavatory loud and abundantly. Then turned out that the plug was defective and the cell stank abominably for hours afterwards. Parsons was removed. More prisoners came and went mysteriously. One, a woman, 
was consigned to room 101, and Winston noticed, seemed to shrivel and turn a different color when she heard those words. A time came when it had been morning when he had been brought here, or it would have been afternoon, or then it would have been midnight. There were six prisoners in the cell, men and women, all sat very still. Opposite Winston sat a man with a chinless, toothy face, exactly like that of some large, harmless rodent. His fat, mottled cheeks were so pouched at the bottom that it was difficult not to believe that he had little store, stores of food tucked away in there. His pale gray eyes flittered timorously from face to face and quickly turned away again when he caught somebody's eye. The door opened and another prisoner brought in whose appearance sent the momentary chill through Winston. He was a commonplace, mean-looking man who might have been an engineer technician of some kind, but it, what was startling was the emaciation of his face. It was like a skull because of the thinness of his mouth and his eyes looked disproportionately large and the eyes seemed filled with murderous, unpleasant hatred of somebody or something. The man sat down on the bench a little distance from Winston. Winston did not look at him again, but the tormented, skull-like face was as vivid in his mind as though it had been straight in front of his eyes. Suddenly he realized what was the matter. The man was dying of starvation. The same thought seemed to occur almost simultaneously to everyone in the cell. There was a very faint stirring all the way around the bench. The eyes of the chinless man kept flitting away towards the skull-faced man, then turned guiltily away, and then being dragged back by irresistible attraction. Presently he began to fidget on his seat. At last he stood up, waddled clumsily across the cell, dug down into his pocket of his overalls, and with a bashed air held out a grimy piece of bread for the skull-faced man. There was a furious, deafening roar from the telescreen. The chinless man almost jumped in his tracks. The skull-faced man quickly th thrust his hands behind his back, as though dis demonstrating to all the world he had refused the gift. Bumstead! roared the voice. Two, seven, one, three, Bumstead J. Let that bread fall to the floor. The chinless man dropped the piece of bread on the floor. Remain where you are standing, said the voice. Face the door. Make no movement. The chinless man obeyed. His large pouchy cheeks were quivering uncontrollably, and the door clanged open. As the young officer ended, stepped aside, there emerged behind him a short, stumpy guard with enormous arms and shoulders. He took his stance opposite the chinless man, and then, at the signal of the officer, let free a frightful blow with all his weight of his body behind it. Full in the chinless man's mouth, the force of it seemed to almost knock him clear off the floor. 
His body was flung against the cell and fetched up against the base of the lavatory seat. For a moment he lay there stunned with dark blood oozing from his mouth and nose. A very faint whispering or squeaking, which seemed unconscious, came out of him. Then he rolled over and raised himself unsteadily on his hands and knees amid a stream of blood and saliva. The two halves of a dental plate fell out of his mouth. The prisoner sat very still. Their hands crossed their knees. The chinless man climbed back into his place. Down one side of his face, the flesh was darkening. His mouth had swollen into a shapeless cherry-colored mass with a black hole in the middle of it. From time to time, the little blood dripped into the breast of his overalls. His gray eyes still flitted from face to face, more guiltily than ever, as though he was trying to discover how much the others despised him for his humiliation. The door opened, and the small gesture indicated the skull-faced man. Room 101, he said. There was a gasp and a flurry at Winston's side. The man had actually flung himself on the knees, to his knees on the floor, with his hands clasped together. Comrade, officer, he cried, you don't have to take me to that place. I haven't already told you everything. What else do you want to know? There's nothing else I would confess, nothing. Just tell me what it is, and I'll confess it straight off. Write it down, and I'll sign it, anything. Not room 101. Room 101, said the officer. His, the man's face, already very pale, turned a color Winston would not have believed possible. It was definitely, unmistakably, a shade of green. Do anything to me, he yelled. You've been starving me for weeks. Finish it off and just let me die. Shoot me, hang me, sentence me to 25 years. Is there somebody else? else you want me to give away just say who it is and I will tell you anything you want I don't care who it is and I don't care what you do to them I've got a wife and three children the biggest mistake the biggest of them isn't six years old you can take the whole lot of them cut their throats in front of my eyes and I'll stand and I'll watch but not room 101 room 101 said the officer. The man looked frantically around at the other prisoners, as though with some idea that he could put another victim in his place. His eyes settled on the smashed face of the chintless man. He flung out a lean, lean arm. That's the one you ought to be talking to, not me, he shouted. You didn't hear what he say, was said after they bashed his face. Give me a chance, and I'll tell you every word it was. He's the one that's against the party, not me. The guard stepped forward. The man's voice rose to a shriek. You didn't hear him, he repeated. Something went wrong with the telescreen. He's the one you want. Take him, not me. Two sturdy guards stooped up, taken by the arms. But just at this moment, he had flung himself across the floor of the cell and grabbed one of the iron legs that supported the bench. 
He set up a wordless howling like an animal. The guards took a hold of him to wrench him loose, but he clung on with astonishing strength. For perhaps twenty seconds they were hauling at him. The prisoners sat quiet, their hands crossed on their knees, looking straight in front of them. The howling stopped. The man had no breath left except for anything except hanging on. Then there was a different kind of cry. A kick from a guard's boot had broken the fingers of one of his hands. They dragged him off. They dragged him to his feet. Room 101, said the officer. The man was led out, walking unsteadily, with head sunken, nursed his crushed hand. All the fight had gone from him. A long time passed. If it had been midnight when the skull-faced man was taken away, it was morning. If it was morning, it was afternoon. Winston was alone, and had been alone for hours. The pain of sitting on the narrow bench was such that often he got up and walked about, unreproved by the telescreen. The piece of bread still lay where the chinless man had dropped it. At the beginning it needed a hard effort not to look at it, but presently hunger gave way to thirst. His mouth was sticky and evil tasting. There was a humming sound and an unvarying white light induced from a sort of faintness, an empty feeling inside his head. He would not get up because the ache in his bones was no longer bearable. and then would sit down again almost at once because he was dizzy to make sure of staying on his feet. Whenever his physical sensations were a little under control, the terror returned. Sometimes, with fading hope, he thought of O'Brien and the razor blade. It was thinkable that the razor blade might arrive concealed in his food if he were ever fed. More dimly he thought of Julia. Somewhere or other, she was suffering perhaps far worse than he would, than he. She'd be screaming with pain at this moment. She thought, if I could save Julia by doubling my own pain, I would. Yeah, I would. But that was merely an intellectual decision taken because he knew that he ought to take it. He did not feel it. In this place you did not feel anything except pain and the foreknowledge of pain. Besides, was it possible when you were actually suffering to wish any reason whatsoever that your own pain should increase? That question was, un was not unanswerable yet. The boots were approaching again. The door opened. O'Brien came in. Winston startled to his feet. The shock of the sight had driven all caution out of him. For the first time in many years he forgot the presence of the telescreen. They got you too? he cried. Oh, they got me a long time ago, said O'Brien, with a mild, almost regretful irony. He stepped aside, and behind him there emerged a broad-chested guard 
with a large black truncheon in his hand. You knew this, Winston, said O'Brien. Don't deceive yourself. You did know it. You have always known it. Yes, now he's, he saw it now. He had always known it, but there was no time to think of that. All he had eyes for was the truncheon and the guard's hand. It might fall anywhere. On the crown, on the tip of an ear, on the upper arm, elbow. The elbow. He slumped to his knees, almost paralyzed, clasping the stricken elbow with the other hand. Everything had ex exploded into yellow light. Inconceivable, inconceivable that one blow could cause such pain. The light cleared, and he could see the other two looking down at him. The guard was laughing at his contortions. One question, at any rate, was answered. Never, for any reason on earth, could you wish an increase of pain. A pain could on wish only one thing. That it should stop. Nothing in the world was so bad as physical pain. In the face of pain there is no heroes. No heroes, he thought, over and over as he writhed on the floor, clutching use uselessly at his disabled arm. Chapter 2 he was lying on something that felt like a camp bed, except that it was higher off the ground and that he was fixed down some way that he could not move. Light seemed stronger than usual was falling on his face. O'Brien was standing at his side, looking down at him intently. At the other side of him stood a man in a white coat, holding a hypodermic syringe. Even after his eyes were open, he took in his surroundings only gradually. He had the impression of swimming up and down into this room. From, so from some quite different world, a sort of underwater world far beneath it. How long had he been down there? He did not know. Since the moment they arrested him, he had not seen darkness or daylight. Besides, his memories were not continuous. There had been times when, un when consciousness, even the sort of consciousness that one has in sleep, had stopped dead and started again after a blank interval. But whether the intervals were of days or weeks, seconds, there was no way of knowing. With the first blow on the elbow, the nightmare had started. Later he realized all that then happened was merely preliminary, a routine, routine interrogation to which nearly all prisoners were subjected. There was a long range of crimes, espionage, sabotage, and the like, to which everyone had to confess as a matter of course. The confession was just a formality, though the torture, the torture was real. How many times had he been beaten? How long had the beatings continued? He could not remember. Always there were five or six men in black uniforms at him simultaneously. Some with fists, some with truncheons, sometimes it was steel rods, sometimes it was boots. 
There were times when he rolled on the floor, shameless as an animal, writhing his body this way and that, in an endless, hopeless effort to dodge the kicks, and simply inviting more and more kicks. In his ribs, in his belly, on his elbows, on his shins, his groin, his testicles, on the bone and the base of his spine, there were times that went on and on until the cruel, wicked, unforgiving thing seemed to him not that the guards continued to beat him, but that he could not force himself into losing consciousness. There were times where he forced, when his nerve so forsook him that he began shouting for mercy even before the beating began. There was the mere sight of a fist drawn back for a blow was enough to make him pour forth a confession of real and imaginary crimes. There were other times when he started out with the resolve of confessing nothing, when every word had to be forced out of him between gasps of pain. There were times when he feebly tried to compromise, when he said to himself, I will confess, but not yet. I must hold out until the pain becomes unbearable. Three more kicks, two more kicks, and then I will tell them what they want. Sometimes he was beaten until he could hardly stand, and then flung like a sack of potatoes onto the stone floor of the cell and left to recuperate for a couple of hours. Then taken out, beaten again, there were, there were no longer periods of recovery. He remembered them dimly because they were chiefly in sleep or stupor. He remembered a cell with a plank bed, a sort of shelf sticking out from the wall, and a tin wash basin, and meals of hot soup and bread, sometimes coffee. He remembered a surly barber arriving to scrape his chin and crop his hair, and businesslike, unsympathetic men in white coats, feeling his pulse, tapping his reflexes, turning up his eyelids, running harsh fingers over him in the search of broken bones, and shooting needles into his arm to make him sleep. The beatings grew less, less frequent. They became mainly a threat, a horror of which he could send back at any moment when his answers were unsatisfactory. His questioners now were not ruffians in black uniforms, but party intellectuals little round men with quick movements and flashing spectacles. Her worked on him in relays over periods of which lasted, he thought, could not be sure, ten or twelve hours at a stretch. These other questioners saw that, it, saw that he was in constant slight pain, but was, not chiefly, but was not chiefly pain that they relied on. They slapped his face, wrung his ears, pulled his hair, made him stand on one leg, refused to let him leave to urinate, shone glaring lights in his face until his eyes ran with water. But the aim of this was simply to humiliate him and destroy his power of arguing and reasoning. Their real power was the merciless, mercilessness questioning that went on and on 
after hour, tripping him up, laying traps for him, twisting up everything he said, convincing him at every step of lies and self-contradiction, until he began weeping, as much from shame as from nervous fatigue. Sometimes he would weep half a dozen times in a single session. Most of the time they screamed abuse at him and threatened at every hesitation to deliver him over to the guards again, but sometimes they would make a change in their tune and call him comrade, appeal to him in the name of Ensoc and Big Brother, and ask him sorrowfully whether he now had he now had not enough loyalty in the party left to make him wish to undo the evil he had done. When his nerves were in rags after hours of questioning, even his appeal would reduce him to sniveling tears. In the end, the nagging voices broke him down more completely than the boots and fists of the guards. They became simply a mouth that uttered, a hand that signed whatever demanded of him. His sole concern was to find out what they wanted him to confess and then confess it quickly, before the bullying started anew. He confessed to the assassination of an eminent party members, the distribution of sidious pamphlets, embezzlement of public funds, sale of military secrets, sabotage of every kind. He confessed that he had been a spy, and the pay of the East Asian government as far back as 1968. He confessed that he was a religious believer, an admirer of capitalism, and a sexual pervert. He confessed that he murdered his wife, although he knew, and his questioners must have known, that his wife was still alive. He confessed that for years he had been in personal touch with Goldstein, and had been a member of his underground organization, which had almost included every human being he had ever known. It was easier to confess it was easier to confess everything and implicate everybody. Besides, in a sense, it was all true. It was true that he had been an enemy of the party, and in the eyes of the party there's no distinction between the thought and the deed. There were also memories of another kind. They stood out in his mind, disconnectedly, like pictures with a blackness all around them. He was in a cell which might have either been dark or light because he could see nothing except a pair of eyes. Near at hand, there was some kind of instrument. It was ticking slowly and regularly. His eyes grew larger and more luminous. Suddenly, he floated out of his seat, dived into the eyes, and was swallowed up. He strapped into a chair surrounded by dials under dazzling lights. A man in a white coat was reading the dials. There was a tramp of heavy boots outside. The door clanged open. Waxen-faced officer marched in, followed by two guards. Room 101, said the officer. The man in the white coat did not turn around. He did not look at Winston either. He was looking only at the dials. He was rolling down a mighty corridor, a kilometer wide, full of glorious golden light, roaring with laughter and shouting confessions at the top of his voice. He was confessing everything, even things he had succeeded to hold back under torture. 
he was relating the entire history of his life to an audience who already knew who knew it already with him were the guards the questioners the men in white coats o'brien julia mr charrington all rolling down the corridor together shouting with laughter some dreadful thing had lain embedded in the future and had somehow skipped over and had not happened everything was all right there was no more pain the last detail of his life was laid bare understood forgiven he was standing up from the plank bed in the half certainty that he heard o'brien's voice all through his interrogation although he never had seen him he could feel he had the feeling that o'brien was just at his elbow just out of sight it was o'brien who was directing everything it was he who set the guards onto winston and prevented them from killing him it was he who decided when winston should scream with pain when and when he should have respite when he was fed when he should sleep when the drug should be pumped into his arm it was he who asked the questions and suggested the answers he was the tormentor he was the protector he was the inquisitor he was the friend and once winston could not remember whether it was in drug sleep or normal sleep or even in a moment of wakefulness a voice murmured in his ear don't worry winston you are in my keeping for seven years i have watched over you now the turning point has come i shall save you i shall make you perfect he was not sure whether it was o'brien's voice but it was the same voice that said to him we shall meet in the place where there is no darkness in that other dream seven years ago he did not remember any ending to his interrogation there was a period of blackness then a cell or a room in which he now had gradually materialized round him he was almost flat on his back unable to move his body was held down at every essential point even the back of his head was gripped in some manner O'Brien looking down at him gravely and rather sadly. His face, seen from below, looked coarse and worn, with pouches under his eyes and tired lines from nose to chin. He was older than Winston had thought him. He was perhaps forty-eight or fifty. Under his hand there was a dial with a lever on top and fingers running across round the face. I told you, said O'Brien that if we meet again it would be here yes said winston without any warning except a slight movement of o'brien's hand a wave of pain flooded his body it was a frightening pain because he could not see that it, what it was happening and he had a feeling that some mortal injury was being done to him he did not know whether the thing was really happening or whether the effect was electricity produced but his body was being wrenched out of shape his joints were being slowly torn apart although the pain had brought the sweat out on his forehead the worst of it was the fear that his backbone was about to snap he set his teeth and breathed hard through his nose trying to keep silent as long as possible 
"'You are afraid,' said O'Brien, watching his face, "'that in another moment something is going to break. "'Your special fear is that it will be your backbone. "'You have a vivid mental picture of vertebrae snapping apart "'and the spinal fluid dripping out of them. "'Is that what you are thinking, is it not, Winston?' "'Winston did not answer. "'O'Brien drew back the lever on the dial. "'The wave of pain receded almost quickly as it had come. "'That was forty,' said O'Brien. "'You can see the numbers on this dial run up to a hundred. "'Will you please remember throughout our conversation "'that I have it in my power to inflict pain on you at any moment "'and to whatever degree I choose?' If you tell me any lies, or attempt in any way, or fall below your usual level of intelligence, you will cry out with pain instantly. Do you understand that? Yes, said Winston. O'Brien's manner became less severe. He resettled his spectacles thoughtfully, and took a pace or two up and down. When he spoke, his voice was gentle and patient. He had the air of a doctor or a teacher, even a priest, anxious to explain and persuade rather than punish. I'm taking trouble with you, Winston, he said, because you are worth trouble. You know perfectly well what is the matter with you, and you have known it for years, as though you have fought against the knowledge. You are mentally deranged. You suffer from a defective memory. You are unable to remember real events. You persuade yourself that you remember other events which never happened. Fortunately, it is curable. You have never cured yourself of it because you did not choose to. There was a small effort in the will that you were not ready to make. Even now, I am well aware you are clinging to the last bit of your disease under the impression that it is a virtue. Now we make an example at this moment which the power of Oceana at which power is the Oceana at war with. When I was arrested, Oceana was at war with East Asia. With East Asia, good. And Oceana has always been at war with East Asia, has it not? Winston drew his breath he opened his mouth to speak, then did not speak. He could not take his eyes away from the dial. The truth, please, Winston, your truth. Tell me what you think you remember. I remember that only a week before I was arrested, we were not at war with East Asia at all. We were in alliance with them. The war was against Eurasia, and that lasted for four years before that O'Brien stopped him with the movement of his hand. For example, he said, some years ago you had a very serious delusion indeed. You believed that three men, three one-time party members named Jones, Aronson, and Rutherford, were men who were executed for treachery and sabotage after making the fullest possible confession, were not guilty of the crimes they were charged with. You believed that you had seen the unmistakable documentary evidence proving their confessions were false. There was a certain photograph that you believed 
had a hallucination. You believed you actually held it in your hands. It was a photograph of something like this. An oblong slip of newspaper had appeared between O'Brien's fingers. For perhaps five seconds, it was within the angle of Winston's vision. It was a photograph, and there was no question of its identity. It was the photograph. It was another copy of the photograph of Jones, Arison, and Rutherford at the party function in New York, which he had chanced upon eleven years ago and promptly destroyed. For only an instant it was before his eyes, and then it was out of sight again. But he had seen it. Unquestionably, he had seen it. He had made a desperate, agonizing effort to wrench the top half of his body free. It was impossible to move so much as a centimeter in any direction. For the moment, he had even forgotten the dial. All he wanted to do was hold the photograph in his fingers again, or at least see it. It exists, he cried. No, said O'Brien. He stepped across the room. There was a memory hole in the opposite wall. O'Brien lifted the grating, unseen, the frail slip of paper was whirling away on the current of warm air and vanishing in the flash of a flame. O'Brien turned away from the wall. Ashes, he said. Not even identifi identifiable ashes. Dust. It does not exist. It never existed. But it did exist. It does exist. It exists in memory. I remember it. You remember it. I do not remember it, said O'Brien. Winston's heart sank. That was double think. He had a feeling of deadly helplessness when he could have been certain that O'Brien was lying, but it would not have seemed to matter. It was perfectly possible that O'Brien had forgotten the photograph, and if so, then already he would have forgotten his denial in remembering it, and forgotten the act of forgetting. How could one be so sure that this wasn't simple trickery? Perhaps that lunatic dislocation of the mind could really happen. That was thought. That was the thought that defeated him. O'Brien was looking down at him. Spectively. More than ever, he had an air of a teacher taking pains with a wayward but promising child. There is a slow party slogan, dealing with the control of the past, he said. Repeat it, if you'd please. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past, repeated Winston obediently. Who controls the present controls the past, said O'Brien, nodding his head in slow approval. Is this your opinion, Winston, that the past has real existence? Again, the feeling of helplessness descended upon Winston. His eyes flitted towards the dial. He not, on, he not only did not know whether yes or no was the answer that would save him from pain, he didn't even know which answer he believed to be the true one. O'Brien smiled faintly. faintly. You are no meta metaphysician, Winston, he said. Until this moment, you had never considered 
what it was meant by existence. I will put it to you precisely. Does the past exist concretely in space? Is there somewhere, another place, or another world of solid objects where the past is still happening? No. Then where, do pa where does the past exist at all? In records, it's written down. In records and in the mind, in human memories. Ah, in memory. Very well. We, the party, control all records. We control all memories. Then we control the past, do we not? But how can you stop people from rem remembering things, cried Winston, again momentarily forgetting the dial. It is involuntary. It is outside oneself. How can you control memory? You have not controlled mine. O'Brien's manner grew stern again, and he laid his hand on the dial. On the contrary, he said, you have not controlled it. That is what brought you here. You are here because you failed in humility and self-discipline. You would not make an act of submission, which is the price of sanity. You preferred to be a lunatic, a minority of one. Only the disciplined mind can see reality, Winston. You believe that reality is something objective, external, existing in its own right. You also believe that the nature of reality is self-evident. When you delude yourself into thinking what you see, that you see something, you assume that everyone else sees the same thing as you. But I tell you, Winston, the reality is not external. Reality exists in the human mind, nowhere else. Not in the individual mind, which can make mistakes. In any case, soon perishes. Only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal, whatever the party holds truth is truth. It is impossible to see reality except by looking through the eyes of the party. That is the fact that you have got to relearn, Winston. It needs an act of self-destruction, an effort of the will. You must humble yourself before you become sane. He paused for a few moments, as though allow, as though to allow what he had been saying to sink in. Do you remember, he went on, writing in your diary? Freedom is the freedom to say two plus two make four. Yes, said O'Brien, uh, Winston. O'Brien held up his left hand, and it's backwards to Winston, with the thumb hidden. The four fingers extended. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? Four. And if the party says that it is not four but five, how many then? Four. The word ended in a gasp of pain. The needle of the dial had shot up to fifty-five. Sweat had sprung out of all over Winston's body. Air tore into his lungs and issued again in deep groans, which were even by clenching his teeth, and he could not stop. O'Brien watched him, the four fingers still extended. He drew back the lever. This time the pain was only slightly eased. How many fingers, Winston? Four. The needle went up to sixty. How many fingers, Winston? 
four, four. What else can I say? Four. The needle had risen again, but he did not look at it. The heavy, stern face and the four fingers, four fingers that filled his vision. The fingers stood up before his eyes like pillars, enormous, blurry, and seemed to vibrate, but unmistakably four. How many fingers, Winston? Four. Stop it. Stop it. How can you go on? It's four. Four. How many fingers, Winston? Five. 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 No, Winston. That's no use. You are lying. You still think there are four. How many fingers, please? Four. Five. Four. Anything you like. Only stop it. Stop the pain. Abruptly, as he, abruptly he was sitting up with O'Brien's arm around his shoulders. Perhaps he had lost consciousness for a few seconds. The bonds that held his body down were loosened. He felt very cold. He was shaking uncontrollably. His teeth were chattering. The tears were rolling down his cheeks. At this moment he clung to O'Brien like a baby, curiously comforted by the heavy arm around his shoulders. He had the feeling that O'Brien was his protector, that the pain was something that came from the outside, from some other source, and that O'Brien was who would save him from it. "'You're a slow learner, Winston,' said O'Brien gently. "'How can I help it?' he blubbered. "'How can I help seeing what's in front of my eyes? Two and two are four. "'Sometimes, Winston, sometimes they are five. Sometimes they are three. "'Sometimes you are to see them all at once. "'You must try harder. "'It is not easy to become sane.' "'He laid Winston down on the bed.' The grip of his limbs tightened again, but the pain had ebbed away, and the trembling had stopped, leaving him merely weak and cold. O'Brien motioned with his head to the man in the white coat, who stood immobile through the proceedings. The man in the white coat bent down and looked closely at Winston's eyes, felt his pulse, laid an ear against his chest, tapped it there, then nodded at O'Brien. "'Again,' said O'Brien. "'The pain flowed through Winston's body. "'The needle must be at seventy, seventy-five. "'He shut his eyes this time. "'He knew that the fingers were still there "'and they were still four. "'All that mattered was somehow to stay alive "'until the spasm was over. "'He ceased to notice whether he was crying or not. "'The pain lessened again. "'He opened his eyes. "'O'Brien had drawn back the lever. "'How many fingers, Winston?' Four. I suppose are four. I would see five if I could. I'm trying to see five. Which do you wish? To persuade me you see five or to really see them? To really see them. Again, said O'Brien. Perhaps the needle was at eighty, ninety. Winston could only intermittently remember why the pain was happening behind his screwed-up eyeballs in a forest of fingers that seemed to be moving in sort of a dance, weaving in and out, disappearing behind one and another. He was trying to count them, but he couldn't remember why. He only knew that it was impossible to count them, that this was somehow due to the mysterious identity between five and four. The pain died down again when he opened his eyes. It was to find that he was still seeing the same thing, innumerable fingers, like moving trees, 
They were still streaming past in either direction, crossing and recrossing. He shut his eyes again. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? I don't know, I don't know. You will kill me if you do that again. Four, five, six. All in honesty, I don't know. Better, said Orion. The needle slid into Winston's arm. Almost at the same instant, a blissful, healing warmth spread all through his body. The pain was already half forgotten. He opened his eyes and looked gratefully at O'Brien. At the sight of the heavy-lined face, so ugly, so intelligent, his heart seemed to turn over. If he could have moved, he would have stretched out a hand and laid it on O'Brien's arm. He had never loved him so deeply at this moment, and not merely because he had stopped the pain, the old feeling, the bottom. It did not matter whether O'Brien was a friend or enemy had come back. O'Brien was the person who could be talked to. Perhaps he was the one who did not want to be loved so much as to be understood. O'Brien had tortured him to the edge of lunacy, and in a little while it was certain he would send him to his death. It made no difference in some sense that went deeper than friendship. They were in intimates, somewhere or another, although the actual words might never be spoken. They were in a place where they could meet and talk. O'Brien was looking down at him with an expression that suggested the same thought might be in his own mind. When he spoke, there was an easy conversational tone. Do you know where you are, Winston? he said. I don't know. I can guess in the ministry of love.